0: If you're following history today, keeping up with the news, you know that Netanyahu is having a tough time bringing all of Israel together. Have you read about it? I thought about David, king of Israel, and we've been studying his prayers, his prophecies, We've been studying various situations and we determined through Psalms many times how God worked in his life and how God will work in anybody's life or any nation's life and we have insight into biblical truth. I thought about Psalms, we've looked at verse one all the way through verse 11. And I read them and I said, I wonder if this is like a a journal that David was keeping as God would speak to him and give him insight. We come to Psalm number 11. And if you would take Psalm 11 and apply it to today's world, it would fill any reporter's heart and mind to say, how did David know? It's that relevant, that clear. So many times in Psalm, we see David has lost his bearings. He's fearful, he's confused, he's under attack, he's being slandered, he's afraid, he can't trust the army, he can't trust the judges. He can't trust his friends, he can't trust his family, and it's hard to delineate exactly what you should do and how you should stand and how you should approach all these multiplicity of situations. And remember at this time in history, and maybe today, Israel was the most educated, erudite, creative, one-on-one, strongest, group of people on the planet Earth. People think, you know, in the first century, all the ignorance, and let me tell you something, the first century Jews were deeply educated, profoundly educated, and so we find the same thing in the era, the hundreds of years before that, in the days of David. So he doesn't know which way to turn. And he goes to the Lord. And as we study these Psalms, if you've been reading them, you wonder, well, what was going on in history? What was this particular crisis in the life of King David? I believe the early part of David's life, he had three different periods. Three different periods in which he was being taught by God profound principles he could use for the rest of his life. Ladies and gentlemen, that's true of all of us. Look back the sweep of your life. If you're young or if you're old, it makes no difference. God is always in the teaching business for all people at all times and all places. And so we see David, I wonder what was going on in Psalm 11. And I looked at it, I said, well, David had the early part of his life I call the country period. That's when he was a shepherd. That's when he spent night under the stars. That's when he learned how to worship the Lord God Almighty. And that was the period in which he was in the country with the sheep. Night after night, he must have prayed. Night after night, he played that harp. Night after night, he defended his sheep. There, he learned to worship during his country stage. Then there was the court stage. Remember that? All of a sudden, killed Goliath, hero, brought in the court of the king, married the, the king's daughter, Saul's daughter, Micah. And then here's in the center of attention and in the court, suddenly Saul turned on him out of paranoid jealousy and was throwing javelins at him at least twice, trying to kill him any way he could. He'd send him out on missions, hoping that he would get killed in impossible military situation, but David kept falling on top. And then there was the other period of his life in his early years, and I call it the period of the caves. He was hiding in caves, running from Saul and now all the army of Israel. And all those periods he was learning Country worship, in the court, wisdom. In the caves, he was learning how to be a warrior. I think Psalm 11 fits the court period. He was in the king's court, and now he didn't know who to trust. The king was trying to kill him any way that he could, and look at Psalm 11. By the way, did you bring a Bible? If not, there's one in the pew in front of you. You gotta have a Bible. Bring a Bible to church, ladies and gentlemen. This is what we teach. This is what we're about. If you didn't bring one, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Even you men can find a scripture today. Psalms about in the middle of the Bible. Just try it. Yeah, get a Bible. It'll help you to nail down principles that I can guarantee you everybody here will need in your life as I need all of them in our life. This Bible is... God's inspired word to wake us up, to equip us. So open your Bibles. The first verse is David's testimony. Look at it. In the Lord, I take refuge. And the truth is, that's all the rest of the chapter if you break it down. In the Lord, I take refuge, said David. He is making his profession of faith, in the middle of the crisis, when everybody seems to be against him, he's frightened, he's bored, he, I don't know what all is going on, but in that court, he didn't know if he'd live from one second to the next. He says, in the Lord, I take refuge. Now, the word Lord there is big. In, In the Hebrew, you use the word Elohim. Elohim is a generic word for Lord. It means he is the creator, he is Elohim. But the word here is Jehovah. All the way through here is the word Jehovah. What is that? That's the intimate word. And this is over exaggeration, but help us understand it. Jehovah would be like your given name and Elohim would be like your, your main name, the name that you, your first name and your last name. David is referring to God here in Jehovah, or Yahweh. It would be like, not Jones, that would be Elohim. It would be like Joe, that would be Yahweh. So he's saying, my friend, no longer a formal name for God, no longer the creator of God, but my friend, someone I know, someone in whom I have relationship with, Now you can be a follower of Confucius and never know Confucian. You can be a follower of a Muslim and never know Allah. You can be a Buddhist and never know Buddha, but you can't be a Christian without knowing God through Jesus Christ. So we look here, he is using an affectionate name. He said, I take refuge in the Lord, my my friend, my, my partner, one in whom he was in, relationship with that's so important and he took refuge what does it mean i trust in him i look to this personal friend god almighty in this world whom i'm in a relationship with and i take my refuge i know he will protect me isn't that a beautiful profession you know i I read the word refuge and i thought about years ago you remember the 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 tremendous fire they had in Yellowstone National Park, some of us remember that a few years back, devastated hundreds of acres of land. And I remember reading about a week or so after that about a forest ranger who was walking through all the debris there, the trees were down, and he saw a bird like this, and he just dead fried in the fire, and he kicked the bird over, and three little, little birds came hopping out. And he knew what happened. When the fire came, perhaps there were eggs there. I doubt they were yet hatched. That mother bird burned to a crisp, covered those eggs, and those little birds were hatched. And we have a passage in the Bible that says we are under his wings. That's who we are, folks. When crisis comes, When you know the Lord by his first name, reverently, he puts us under his wings. That's what David is saying. He said, man, I have all this problem. Everybody's trying to kill me. I don't know who to trust. I don't know which way to turn. He said, but I tell you, I am taking my refuge in the Lord. That's the first profession of faith. That's his witness. And now we see the next part of it, the question we'll ask. He's saying, how can you say to my soul? Here he is receiving the world's advice. Everybody knows he's under pressure. Everybody knows they're trying to kill him. Everybody knows the situation in the court. And now here's the world's advice. And look what the world would advise David in a SOS moment in his life. Look what he says. He said, Flee. how can you say to my soul? Flee as a bird to your mountain, the world would say, run. The bottoms are falling out, we think, in our culture of America, what does the world say? Run, let's move somewhere. A lot of people, man, I'm gonna move out in the country. I'm gonna get out of this place. Run, run, run. Hear that all the time. What's gonna happen to America? I'm gonna run. I'm gonna go to an island. I'm gonna find another country. I'm gonna hide out in the boondocks. The only way to get out of this is to Run, that's what the world tells us to do. When there is a crisis, what do God's people do? A lot of the world says you gotta run. Then the world tells you it's too late. That's what I'm telling David. He said, behold, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. The world says, man, you got a tough time here. Just run from it. Just get out of here. He said, it's too late because already your enemy has the bow out, and they've got the string there, they put the arrow there, and they're gonna shoot in the darkness and hit everybody who stands up for God or for righteousness. It's too late. World says, run. World said, oh, it's too late in the situation we're in. And look at the next word we get here, the question. He said, If the foundations are destroyed, if the foundation are destroyed, the world says we're to run. It's too late, they've already got their bow set. The woke agenda is founded in virtually every major institution in America today. Let's get out of here and said if the foundations are destroyed, and ladies and gentlemen, we see today In our world, in our America, the foundations are not totally destroyed, but they're being destroyed day by day by day. So we wanna say, what do we do? The question coming up is, what do the righteous do? What do the Christians do? What do the God-fearing people do? What about foundations? If you watch any of these fix them up kinda shows, There's one in my hometown, Laurel, Mississippi. There they find old homes and they fix them up. Now, when you buy a home or you wanna fix up a home, what do you look at? Well, we can get the roof or the sheet rocks coming down or we get new appliances and new wiring and new plumbing. You can do that, but you'd better look at the foundation. All that doesn't make a lick of difference if the foundation is being destroyed, right? And we see that happening all the time. I look a little bit into foundations uh, and it's very interesting. Some foundations they discover just cracked and you take epoxy and put it in water and probably fix the cracks. Uh, other foundation you go to and, and the soil has shifted, you know, sinking sand, uh, shifting sand and what do you do then? You, they go in and put some kind of piling down and sort of steady the, foundation of the house with the foundation, that can be done. But I'll tell you what's happened in Connecticut recently, Connecticut of all places. 34,000 homes had foundational problems and there was not a thing in the world anybody could do about it because in the concrete that was put there, they had what is called fool's gold put in with it. There was a chemical put in the context of this that were causing all the foundations to crumble. Paratite, that's what it was. And nothing you could do because it'd get hot, expand, cold, contract, and therefore all these foundations of 34,000 homes could not be repaired. All you had to do is, is tear the whole thing down. There was no hope. And we wonder today as we see the basic Foundations of the United States of America being torn down, what is the answer? We see it everywhere. So many illustrations. The state of North Carolina passed a law that if any college or university or school was under the state's control that they must teach American history, okay? By law of North Carolina today, you have to teach American history. 672 professors, I'm sure most of them tenured, provided a protest and signed a letter saying, we're not going to do this on the grounds that you are indoctrinating the students And you say, what did you have to teach? They listed the things. The Constitution, the bylaws, the amendments. The Federalist Papers, you know what that is? I keep a copy of the Federalist Papers right behind my desk every day, it's right there. Because the Federalist Papers, if you have forgotten, help us to understand what was going on in the deliberation before these founding documents were were put in place. It explains the debate the, the compromises, what happened before we got those basic foundational documents upon which America is supposed to operate. But these professors said no. And one of the things they had to read was letter from the Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King's classic document. Say, said, why in the world were these left-wing progressives not want students, not only to study American history, these basic tenets, but not to read the my goodness, a letter from the Birmingham jails. They say, well, you know, this, this might incite minority groups, and, and we don't want to do that. Have you ever read the letter from the Birmingham jails? It's one of the most profound, biblical, theological, passionate gospel words that you'd ever read. No, that's why they didn't want God in Christ and biblical principles to be heard by those they wanted to keep woke in our world. Our foundations, our foundations are being attacked and we said, now wait a minute. What was that? What? Did you hear that? if our foundations are being attacked and we stand on the basis of these basic principles well the Bible asks the next question here it says what can the righteous do oh you see what's happened ladies and gentlemen is when our human foundations are attacked We say, all is lost, let's run, Uh, let's hide, it's too late. But our foundation of being attacked and therefore when a crisis comes, you know what it does? It says to you and to me and to all of America and the world, what are the foundations we're really standing on? What what, what are our true? foundations, a crisis will reveal that every single time. A crisis reveals who you are, who I am, always in every life. So here, David says, you standing on human foundations, or are you standing on God's foundations? And he says, the Lord is in his holy temple, verse 4 the Lord's throne is in heaven and his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men." What's he saying? He's saying, all the foundations of man, if that's what you're counting on, if that's what you're banking on, a crisis has come, you'd better see and understand that the Lord is in his holy temple. That's on this earth, that's the tabernacle. Temple wasn't built. It says God's people are worshiping in his house for one thing. And he said the Lord is on his throne in heaven, that's another thing. And he say God is the only true foundation upon which we can stand and the Lord is with his worshipers on this earth and the Lord is on his throne in heaven and the Lord is sovereign and all of history ends up being God's history. Amen. Now It's a test that comes to us, as it did to David. It says, the Lord's eyes, behold his eyelids, test the sons of men. That's humanity. By the way, in the Hebrew, this is the cutest little phrase there. It says, the eyelids, it says, God is squinting his eyes. You know, you will really see something, you know, clearly you go, you really want, he said, God is squinting his eyes. And the Bible says, He is casting his eyes all over the world. And he's looking at us. He's looking at human beings because we are being tested. We're being tested to determine what are you counting on? What are you really relying on? On the foundation of God. And he says, God's foundation is set. It is there. It is immovable, it is permanent, or are you counting on some other foundation like, oh, my health, my family, my wife, my husband, my children, uh, my well-being, my, what are you counting on? He's saying, wake up. He said, you'd better be standing on the solid rock on the foundation. He says, I am testing everything, and look what he says about his testing. His eyes behold, his eyelids are squinting, to test believers and unbelievers. Verse five, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and he says the one who loves violence and his soul. Verse six, the wicked, uh, the the, the rain snares, fire and brimstone. The wicked, God's not testing the wicked. The wicked have had it. Do you hear fire and brimstone there? Sound like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not testing them. He knows where they are. Zip, bang, they're under the judgment of God now and forever, they're out of here but he is testing those who are righteous. How do we get to be righteous? Nobody is righteous. It is when God and Jesus Christ enters our life, we invite Christ in our life, then the Holy Spirit begins to work in material like you and me and that Holy Spirit is making us more like Christ and more righteous in this life. And therefore, when God looks at those of us who have put on Jesus Christ, He sees you and he sees me as his son and we're righteous. That's the way you get to be righteous. It's not trying, it's not effort. It's not doing more, giving more. It is we trust in him and he puts on the righteous Christ. That's what we put on. We take off the old self, we put on the new self. And therefore he is testing us. Test, what's a test? What is a test for when we were in school? is to determine what we know and what we don't know, right? Hopefully that when we discovered what we don't know, we'll find out the answer when we missed it on a test, right? Now we have all kinds of professors. Some of them test and they wanna prove how ignorant we are and they take some fine footnote in something we could have read and ask us something about it. I don't like professors like that. When I was in school, I'll be honest with you. If I had a professor who was passionate about what they were teaching, they believed what they were teaching, and they were kind of impart that knowledge to me, they got my respect and my attention, and I studied and applied myself. Some of them were tough, but they really wanted, and therefore we were tested to see whether that we're up to speed. Now, people have different abilities. Uh, my wife, Lisa, she'll be mad to be telling you this. From the first grade all the way through high school and college, she may have made two Bs, probably at PE. <laughs> and by the way, she's the dumbest member of her family. She really is. Her other three brothers, her younger brother was MD when he was 21. Her older brother is in Mensa. You know what that is? And he didn't miss a test on the Mensa test when he's a junior. So she is the dumbest person in college in her whole, whole whole family. But she made only two or three Bs all the way through. She'll deny it, but that's true. Now, I, I, I don't wanna brag, I did the same thing. I made only two or three Bs. And the rest of them were Cs and Ds and a few Fs, I'll be honest with you. But, but here we go. God is testing us to see where we are. And there are only two kinds of tests in God's framework. Two kinds of tests. There is the test that was used by Jonah and the test that was used by Job. We mentioned him last week. Two tests. What was God's test of Jonah? By the way, God is testing us. Remember where we are? In this crisis we're in, when the human foundation is shattering, it's it's not steady, We're looking for a solid rock foundation. We're determining whether or not we're really in God's family. Everything else is shaking. Are we in God's family? So, there are two kinds of tests. The test that God gave to Jonah. He said, Jonah, you're gonna run into a big storm. God gave Jonah an assignment. He said, Jonah, I want you to go and speak my truth to those Ninevites, those people that you hate more than any other people, those godless people, those pagan people, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to speak my word to them and tell them to get right with me or they're going to be wiped out." That was his message. And Jonah says, I'm not gonna do it. But a little problem on board a ship, they threw him over. Swallowed by a whale, three days and three nights he's in the whale before he prayed. I don't think it'd take me that long, I don't know. <laughs> but that's how far Jonah was from God. But then he said, Lord, I'll do what you've commanded me to do and you know the story, he went to Nineveh and he was the most unlikely person, giving the most unlikely message, turn to God or <laughs> you've had it, but they did. What was the test? Give to Jonah. He was saying, Jonah, you're not where you ought to be. This is where you should be. And Jonah was tested until finally he went to the place that God wanted to be and to do the thing that God wanted to do. That's the way God tests us. He wakes us up with a crisis. Are you going to continue like this, that attitude? And God puts us through tough times in many, many areas to test us to see if we're willing to be obedient to him and do what he wants us to do or stop doing what we're doing that he doesn't want us to be engaged in, right? That's the way the test of Jonah was. Well, a test of Job, we touched on it. Job was a righteous man, a wealthy man, an influential man, a benevolent man, a moral man. And all of a sudden, Job loses everything he has. He loses health. And all the way through Job, 42 chapters, bang, bang, bang. All of them tests. Job, you're guilty of this. You're a sinner like this. You're a liar, you're a cheat, you're sexually immoral, you're not generous, and every one of those things, Job says, you're not telling the truth. I am a moral man. Job passed every test of morality. Remember? But look, the test of Job is different from the test of Jonah. Job, we discover at the end, when he faces God, he realized his sin was one of pride. He was using his religiosity, his morality as an example of God, look what I'm doing for you. God, look how much better I am than other people. Look how you're blessing me. And the question was, you're being blessed because you're moral and you're God-fearing? And Job had to realize he was using his religion as a thing of pride. Be careful, folks, be careful. See, that's that kind of test to see if we're genuine and real, whatever happens to us, whatever the situation, whatever valleys we go through, we are going to stand on the foundation of God in Jesus Christ. Two kinds of tests, first, be obedient, the second, don't use your morality and religiosity in order to say, "Oh, look how blessed I am and how troubled you are." Pride can come in so many different colors and forms, can it not? Two kinds of tests: foundational test. Your foundation is being shaken in the secular world, absolutely. But God says. Are you on me? Am I your solid rock? If you're on me, on top of me, your foundations will not be shaken. Never be shaken, can't be shaken. And that's what a crisis is all about. To see upon that which we should be standing and counting on forever. Do you get it? A lumberjack, he's with old-fashioned, cut down trees with an ax. He's in a grove of trees, he's supposed to cut them all down. He went to one tree, he was about to cut it down, not too big, he looked up there, a little bird was building his nest. So he took the side of the ax and hit it on the tree, bang, bang, and, and the tree began to shake, little bird, Moved to another tree and started to build a nest. The lumberjack went over there. Oh, i got to cut that one down too. Bang, bang, hit the tree and little bird moved to another tree and started to build it. Bang, bang, and little bird moved off and landed on a rock It started to build his nest on a rock. Ladies and gentlemen, what are we relying hang on? The world and its agenda and the foundation we have in government, et cetera, et cetera. We'd better make sure that we're like David. He took his refuge in the Lord and was building his life on the rock in the middle of all the storms he was facing. And the end of the verse, look at it, it's fabulous. It's just powerful as it can possibly be. Verse seven, for the Lord is righteous He loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. Christ makes us righteous, miracle. God loves the righteous and the reward is, we'll see his face. We'll see the face of God. My mother, in our little kitchen linoleum floor, I'd come home from school day after day after day, and she'd be singing, didn't sing in the choir, but she had a nice soprano voice. No one there but her, singing at the top of her lungs, and she would sing so many times, I've heard it all of my life. In the morning, I see his face, In the evening, his form I trace. In the darkness, his voice I know. I see Jesus everywhere I go. In that day, ladies and gentlemen, that is what God promises us. If we make sure that in Christ, we build our life on a foundation that cannot be shaken. I read, Hebrews chapter 12, a couple of times and went back and reread part of it. We're talking about things that cannot be shaken. Listen to what we hear here in Hebrews chapter 12. And his voice, God's, shook the earth then, and now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet much more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of creative things, so that those which cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's our foundation. We live in a kingdom on this earth and in heaven, and when God and Jesus Christ is the king, in that kingdom, there is nothing else can happen to anybody here, past, present, or future, when we're in that kingdom with Christ that can never be shaken.